millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Silicon Valley bank debacle might be the most pitch-perfect encapsulation of everything that's wrong with our current financial, social, and political systems all at once. I'm Ryan Grimm, and we'll be unpacking that meltdown on today's Deconstructed. One of the incredible feats of today's tech moguls is to somehow manage to make the old robber barons look downright civic-minded by comparison. So during the panic of 1907, before there was a central bank, J.P. Morgan famously gathered together the country's biggest bankers and persuaded them all to put their own capital on the line to restore confidence in the financial system. A populist movement followed by demanding the creation of the Federal Reserve to take power out of their hands. But it's impossible to even conceive of today's robber barons putting their capital on the line. And last week, it quickly became every man for himself, with billionaires telling each other there was no downside to pulling their money from Silicon Valley Bank, so they might as well just do it and do it quickly. It's striking that the collapse of the bank that fuels much of the business in Silicon Valley and the resulting threat of contagion didn't strike these radical Randian libertarians as something that might qualify as a downside. As long as they got out, they didn't care. And of course, these libertarians immediately began demanding a government bailout. Back in 2018, we at The Intercept spent a lot of energy covering the assault on the Dodd-Frank Wall Street reforms that was then underway. It didn't take hindsight to know it was a terrible idea. And this bill says, let's let those 25 banks be regulated just, you know, like they were tiny little community banks. I got to tell you, a quarter of a trillion dollar bank is not a community bank. So what's the consequence of doing that, plus other changes that help the remaining banks? The answer is, it puts us at much greater, puts us at greater risk that um, that the, uh, there will be another taxpayer bailout, that there will be another crash and another taxpayer bailout. That was Elizabeth Warren. Here's Bernie Sanders on the Senate floor. But now, 10 years later, hoping that we forget all about that, these large financial institutions are back again. How pathetic is that? Just yesterday... The Congressional Budget Office told us that the legislation we are debating today will, and I quote, increase the likelihood that a large financial firm with assets of between $100 billion and $250 billion would fail, end of quote. That's the CBO. In other words, this legislation makes it more likely that we will see another financial crisis makes it more likely that there will be another huge taxpayer bailout and massive dislocation of our economy. One of the most active opponents of that law was the AFL-CIO's policy director at the time, Damon Silvers, who had also served as Warren's deputy on the panel tasked with investigating the 2008 bailout. He's been one of the most influential progressive figures in Washington when it comes to regulating finance over the past two decades, and he's currently a visiting professor at University College London's Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose, 
and he continues working with the labor movement in the U.S. and the United Kingdom. Damon, welcome to Deconstructed. Thanks, Ryan. It's good to be with you. So, Damon, you've been involved in trying to prevent financial fraud and financial crises and responding to fraud and financial crises for more than 20 years now, going back to Enron and and maybe even before, up through the 2008 financial crisis. And I'm curious, when you, as, you, as you're watching this Silicon Valley bank crisis unfold, you know, flowing into the Credit Suisse one, which type of crisis kind of occurs to you, or is this a synthesis of everything you've seen? <laughs> well, you know, that's a, that's a really good question, Ryan. I, I, I mean, as somebody at the IMF once told me, you know, bank crises all are kind of the same, right? They, they all involve somebody essentially trying to get something for nothing and getting caught. <laughs> and then potentially an atmosphere of of fear and panic taking hold inside la- around larger markets. Um, I, I think one thing about this that is different. I mean, it resembles some things that have been for some episodes that have been forgotten uh, in the '90s, where in the context of rising interest rates, individual institutions blew up without there actually being a kind of genuinely systemic problem. So if you think about like what happened in 2008, that was a monster crisis because what was wrong was that the entire banking system globally had kind of gone off in a really destructive and irresponsible direction around around mortgage finance and around all of the financialization that grew out of mortgage finance. This looks a lot, this is not that, I don't think. I think this looks a lot more like long-term capital management. A bunch of people who thought they were the smartest people in the world went and did some incredibly stupid things in the context of interest rates. And then essentially said, you know, we're so smart and important that we get, we have to be treated specially. We have to be treated differently than we would be treated if we were just ordinary, ordinary people running a bank somewhere in the Midwest. It actually kind of shows the way that we think about the smartest people in the universe. Wasn't long-term capital management run by a couple Nobel Prize winners? It was. It was, indeed. So back then, you needed credentials. Now, if you dropped out of Harvard or Stanford <laughs> and instantly became worth $10 billion, that, that's the kind of Nobel Prize for our period of time. Yeah. I mean, there is something to that, Ryan. I, I, um, unfortunately, I also think here that we're really talking about the nexus of two cultures of greed and arrogance that connected in Silicon Valley Bank. Um, Maybe three, actually, because really you're talking about something that was so powerfully aided and abetted by the the politics of plutocracy in our country, right? Where I I don't think any of this would have happened had President, had, had Donald Trump and the Republican congressional leadership with the help of a few Democrats weakened Dodd-Frank. I I don't think, I think we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation had that not happened in 2018. And why is that? What's the mechanism that, you know, specifically that would have prevented this from happening, you think? Well, the way that the Dodd-Frank Act, which was passed under President Obama's leadership in in 2010, uh, in response to 2008, what the Dodd-Frank Act did was recognize that there were financial institutions that, if they failed, could have really broad effects. And therefore, those institutions had to be carefully watched, more carefully watched than just, you know, your small town bank. And uh, they they were called systemically significant financial institutions. And what being carefully watched meant was that they were subject to regular stress tests 
by their bank regulators. And stress test means you would do a financial exercise like uh, you run a cassette of computer programs against the financial picture of the bank, and then you assume that something bad happens. You assume that interest rates go up or, or down, depending on where the vulnerability of the bank is. You assume, assume rates move. You assume that maybe your key customers have business problems. You make assumptions and then see what happens to the bank's finances. In, in those tests applied to any, to any uh, bank over $50 billion in assets. At the time, uh, in 2018, when the Trump administration pushed this through Congress, this weakening of the bill, in 2018, it was, as I said, it was $50 billion. And at that time, Silicon Valley Bank was kind of around $50 billion. They, they, I, I don't remember the exact, exactly what their net assets were in 2018. They moved that, they moved that number up to $250 billion, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, I remember them saying, we're approaching 50, and we're not going to want to hit 50 if you don't pass this. Like, you know, right. lift this up so we can keep going. Right. And Silicon Valley Bank was an important advocate. Uh, for this de- for this deregulation, and so after the deregulation, they grew dramatically, and in particular, they grew dramatically from 20, 2020 to, two, to to last week when they collapsed, uh, in a way that should have rung alarm bells everywhere. Right, you you, you a, a big bank doesn't triple in assets in two years uh, in a, in in competitive in competitive banking markets without something being wrong. Uh, without essentially something being mispriced. And so, uh, but during that period, any kind of stress test around rising interest rates would have shown that there was a real serious problem. But those stress tests never happened because because of the weakening of regulation during the Trump administration. And I remember covering this in, in 2018, and Republicans needed at least 10 the House, they controlled the House, so they didn't need any help there, but they needed at least 10 Democrats in the Senate. I think they wound up getting about 17 of them. What was it like at the time, kind of pushing back against it? And did you ever have a shot of getting that down to nine, or was it always baked in that they were going to have enough to kind of push this over the finish line? I have no idea whether it was all, always baked in. I can tell you that at, at the time, I was the policy director of the AFL-CIO. Then AFL-CIO President Richard Trumpko was just outraged by this, by this bill. He had been involved in, in pushing for Dodd-Frank, and the AFL-CIO had been a major uh, political force pushing for the passage of Dodd-Frank, for the strengthening of Dodd-Frank. We, we thought Dodd-Frank should have gone a lot further. We thought we should have really restored, more or less restored the New Deal banking regime of, of Glass-Steagall, separating investment banking and, and commercial banking. Uh, we thought we should have had a financial transactions tax. We, should have, we thought we should have done a number of things. But we were very proud of what we did accomplish uh, in, in, in uh, working to pass Dodd-Frank. And so weakening in this way, we thought was just outrageous. And we were particularly outraged by the fact that there were Democrats who had voted for it. I think it's really important to be clear here. This was a Republican project. This was a project of the Trump administration, Republican leadership. Had other people, had, had Democrats been in control of Congress during this period, I do not believe, uh, and, and, or, or the White House, I don't believe this would have passed. Um, but, but it did get Democratic votes, and it wouldn't have passed without them. So I want to put a, a, a separate theory to you, which is that no bank, no matter how, you know, unless it's backstopped by, you know, the complete Fed printing press, you know, can survive a full-on banking run. And so, yeah, I want to probe a little bit how, how this happened. You know, how 
the depositors and the uh, you know the folks that had their money in Silicon Valley went about you know pulling it out so quickly. And I actually wanted to read to you. I, I, this is from a source of mine that I've known for a while out in uh, Silicon Valley who was on. I'll I'll, I'll just read it to you. He says. Mm-hmm. He said, I'm not billionaire level, but I'm in a lot of the signal groups. And by the signal groups, these are these gigantic text, text groups of all of these billionaires and multimillionaires who, who live in Silicon Valley or are founders, etc. He writes, uh, one of the groups I'm in collectively took out $1.4 billion, another $850 million, and another $550 million. He says, I can't verify if people are telling the truth, but self-reported and not coordinated, just a lot of, hey, who took their cash out and how much? Most of this was company cash as well, he said. Then he said, what was interesting about the conversation is it basically felt like a group of people talking about why X team was going to win the Super Bowl versus Y team. Some camps Thursday were, let's stay in, SVB is fine. Another camp, there's no risk to taking it out. Why would I keep it in off of just principle? And plenty of other views, as you can imagine. And then he finishes, the the funny part was it felt almost exactly like how other tech stuff goes, rushing in reaction to everyone talking about something. The blue chip VCs suggested something, then that leaked to the other ones. Then other ones, we had all our investors calling us and basically demanding we pull our cash. And so this is kind of, I don't, you could call this person a, a grassroots, you know, he's only worth a couple hundred million dollars. He's, so he's seeing it kind of from the bottom of the, of the Silicon Valley echelon. Um, what, did, what did you see from the outside and what, what's your sense of, of what went on? Ryan, I, I think this is such an important question. I think this may be the most important question uh, involved here, or at least... The, the most, the one where the answer is least clear and most important, all right? To your point about no bank can survive a full-on run, that's almost precisely what one of the most powerful figures in the 2008 financial crisis said to me at a key moment. We were having a debate about uh, what banks were solvent. And this person, who's frankly experience and knowledge in this area dwarfs mine, s- said to me, absent confidence, no bank is solvent. And, you know, in a way, we all know this. Any, any one of us who've watched It's a Wonderful Life know this, right? <laughs> right? It, a bank intermediates. You, you, on the one hand, all us depositors are entitled to take our cash out at any time. On the other hand, as Jimmy Stewart said, <laughs> your cash is invested in, like, people's houses and, and loans to operating companies, which is in machinery and software and so forth, right? So... So the idea that everyone can just run into the bank one day and ask for all their cash and somehow the bank's going to be able to do that without help from somebody, right, is silly. And so there's two ways in which banks can be understood to be insolvent. One way is that is that if you took all the assets of the bank and liquidated them, would they be enough to pay all the liabilities all in one go? Right? That's a kind of insolvency. But it's a, it's a kind. It's almost it's it's important and it has to be addressed. But it won't lead to catastrophe as long as everybody doesn't demand their money on that day, right? And there's all kinds of accounting games surrounding banks that make it hard to know whether or not on any given day that bank could actually meet that kind of of run. By the way, this is why we have a Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve was created after just catastrophic bank runs in the, in, in the first decade of the 20th century right. to provide liquidity to banks should there be a run, right? So that, you could, so that banks could turn those illiquid assets into cash very, very quickly and, and at fair prices, not at fire sale prices, in response to any kind of loss in confidence. 
So the other kind of bank collapse is when the bank literally runs out of cash. When the bank does not have enough money to pay the normal demands on that bank or to pay extraordinary demands when there is a loss of confidence. And I think we saw SVB go in, the, in a matter of days from, you know, from a, an accounting problem to a liquidity problem. Right? Now, why did that happen? That ha- it seems to me, watching from a distance, that it happened because of the process you were just talking about. And some very inside people appear to have set it off. And uh, the, some of the people whose behavior I have seen, uh, I saw literally I, uh, Peter Thiel, uh, Bill Ackman at Pershing Square, Larry Summers, all were in the media in one form or another or in social media or on big listservs uh, telling people that A, there was a crisis in this bank, that B, people should pull their money, that C, if the federal government didn't take extraordinary action, that there would be a broader crisis in the banking sector. Right? This then connects to the, all the volatility we saw over the last four or five days. It is, I think, really unclear who's, what information set these people off. Where did they get it? Was it legal for them to have it and use it the way they used it? Um, was it even accurate in relation to what, where things actually stood when they started doing it? Or were they engaged in a self-fulfilling prophecy? And in particular, were they engaged in trying to essentially, once it became clear that there really were risks, were some of these people engaged in a kind of uh, a, an attempt to coerce the banking regulators by setting off a larger bank run in banks that actually were more or less okay? And, and what interests were at play here? What securities positions did these people have? What trading did they do? Were they in, were they in derivatives markets? There's a million ways to play a game in this kind of situation, particularly if you are driving the market. And this is a matter that requires investigation by people with subpoena power. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There are those smaller games that you can play, you know, take, take certain positions that benefit by, you know, the actions that you take. But then there's the bigger game. And I'm, I'm curious for, for your take on this, and if you think this is something investigators ought to look into too. I mean, essentially, Silicon Valley understands that its, its ability to thrive relies on extremely loose monetary policy. Like, the, you know, it's the, the quantitative easing and the low interest rates really, really juiced uh, their ability to quote unquote innovate. Uh, the tightening of monetary policy 
has been brutal for them. You've seen, you know, layoffs, you've the tech apocalypse. Uh, you know, you you have the obituaries of Silicon Valley being written. As a result of this crisis, it is going to be more difficult uh, for the Fed to continue pursuing its tight monetary policy. So, is that just a happy coincidence for the people who were involved in this bank run, or do you think it's worth? investigators actually probing whether there was some coordination around a broader goal here? <laughs> Ryan, I would say that once you start asking the, the first kinds of questions about kind of basic issues around securities manipulation and promoting a bank run, both of which are criminal acts, by the way, promoting a bank run or committing uh, securities manipulations around a bank run, those are crimes. Once you start asking those questions, I think you'll certainly find any evidence of that there is of what of, of a kind of macroeconomic manipulation, which is what you're talking about. I wouldn't put anything past some of the individuals whom I just mentioned, but I think it's unlikely that they consciously did that. Um, it, it, it's too. It's sort of too. The relationship between means and ends is too arc, is too sort of strange, right? Um, uh, um, but there's no question that it, that it had the effect that you're that you're talking about, mm-hmm. and there's a, a stupendous irony here from the perspective of the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve has been saying now for for some months that really, in order to stabilize inflation, that they need to crush worker bargaining power. Now, by the way, there's absolutely no evidence that worker bargaining power which has grown a bit in, in, during periods of full employment. And worker bargaining power has anything to do with the inflation we've been witnessing, which is clearly dem- uh, supply-side driven. It's driven by, by uh, issues with COVID and China and Ukraine and Russia and so forth. So the Fed has been raising rates, and the Fed has been saying, we're going to raise rates until we see, essentially, more unemployment. Now, that's really wrong. Right? It's wrong empirically, it's wrong morally, it's, it's wrong every, every, every which way. But the irony is, is that um, actually the job market's pretty healthy, despite the Fed's efforts. Inflation is coming down while the job market remains healthy. But they seem to have really put a knife in the back of, of, uh, an import, of meaningful segments of both tech and, and finance. And those people... Who, some of whom were active advocates of the Fed attacking working people. I mean, Larry Summers has been very, very clear that he thinks interest rates should rise until working people suffer. And now when Larry and his friends started suffering, all of a sudden it's a different story. Mm-hmm. But, what, what, but my view is that whatever the, ra- the reasons for this, it's long, since, it's long past time for the Fed to ease up. And perhaps now they will. And and so if you, if you watch the kind of commentary on this, you saw a lot of anger and a lot of frustration. But if you lifted the veil a little bit, you saw that almost everybody in the end agreed on some level that most or all of the depositors actually did need to be protected and protected quickly by the Biden administration, which then gets us into the realm of talking about bailouts. But I'm curious, having both studied the New Deal and also having been deputy chair of the Oversight Commission of the bailout back in, uh, what, 2008 to 2010, how this feels relative to 2008, 2010. Is it, this, is it that type of bailout or are we looking at something else? And what, what should U.S. bank policy be in situations like this rather than kind of doing it ad hoc as we seem to do it now? Yeah, Ryan, you, you raise a whole bunch of different issues. I, I, I think um, 
I think first it's important to say that the treatment of SVB is actually mostly not ad hoc. But the, the exception, the ad hoc part is very important. The treatment of SVB has largely been within the framework of New Deal bank regulation, meaning that they have been put by the FDIC into receivership. The, the, man, the management has been removed. The stockholders essentially have been wiped out. It's unclear exactly what will happen to the bondholders, but it will depend on whether there's anything left over after the depositors are, are, are covered. And it will also depend on whether or not ultimately there is a sale of the SVB, uh, the, the, the bridge bank that SVB has been turned into, whether there's a sale of that to a solvent bank, which is also kind of generally how this kind of thing would be, would, has been dealt with since the New Deal. Uh, it, 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 this goes back to what I said earlier. At, at the moment, despite what people like Larry Summers were saying, this is a one-off. This is a uniquely mismanaged bank. True. I mean, the rising interest rates have created some stress in the financial system, but we're not seeing the kind of situation that we saw in the fall of 2008 in terms of an entire, the entire banking sector having, having uh, essentially sort of destroyed itself. So A, you ha- what you have here is something that has largely gone on within the New Deal order, and in a way that, in my view, should have been done with some important modifications, should have been done in 2008. The, the thing that's different, the thing that's ad hoc here, is the decision to, uh, as, and you began your question with this, is the, is the decision to ensure, to extend insur- deposit insurance to all of SVB's depositors. Now, some background here is necessary to understand this. The federal deposit insurance system that's run by the FDIC insures deposits up to $250,000. And there's a system of, of insurance premiums that are paid by banks that support that system. And there is a theory behind it, which is that um, under $250,000 are people who can't afford to lose the money and have no real ability to figure out whether or not their bank is strong or not strong. Whereas over $250,000 is amounts of money being deposited by largely by financially sophisticated people and institutions who have a capacity both to absorb losses and to police the banks themselves. And that this is an important mechanism for market discipline over the banking sector, while at the same time, we have this broad insurance, that there's a balance maintained between, you know, ensuring that we don't have runs on banks and that ordinary people aren't victimized by uh, poor bank management or bank fraud, uh, and on the other hand, that we don't just have essentially a a, a a nationalized banking system with private profits, right? Which is what would happen if you just had, if you said, okay, well, we're going to just guarantee the banks, everything about the banks will be publicly guaranteed, but we have them be run by private parties for private profits, right? Good deal. The, the, the FDIC, ins- right? Yeah, it would be a good deal. <laughs> for the bankers. Right. And... Uh, and the FDIC insurance system is designed to maintain a balance between those two things. Now, here comes SVB, and SVB, almost all of its deposits were uninsured because they were so big, right? They're all, they're all over, the, the, only about 7% of the total deposit base of SB, SVB was within the insurance limit. And so, literally, and, and it's not just anybody. It's very wealthy, powerful, connected people. Uh, and the people on your signal, the signal chats you're talking about. 
Um, and it's not just that they're wealthy, powerful, and connected. It's their it's that the nature of their connections runs to venture capital firms and to larger aggregations of wealth and power. And so all these people show up and say, you know, oh, never mind. And all these people who are exactly the kind of people that the policy system envisions taking responsibility for themselves, they show up and say, oh, no, we need a bailout. Right? Never mind that we didn't pay insurance premiums for our deposits. Never mind that we kind of blind, never mind that many of us knew something about this bank because we were all close to it or, or should have known something about this bank. We want a special deal. Now that I think created, and, and they went and pounded the table and they called their political friends and all that went on last week, Thursday and Friday, right? Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and, and into the weekend. Some of them said, we, our payroll is in this. The, the wine industry particularly uh, was saying, you know, our payrolls are in this bank. I don't know what the truth of all that is and how many weeks of payroll they had on an advanced deposit. And, you know, that'll that'll be worth looking at in some detail later. And as Ken Klippenstein reported, Gavin Newsom's wineries uh, had banked at Silicon Valley Bank. Right. Well, you had a lot of... So, speaking, yeah. speaking of friends in high places, yeah. Well, and it was, after all, a California state bank. It was regulated by the California state bank regulators. but But these demands were then made. And this, if you're a bank, if you're an experienced bank regulator, you know, you take all this with a grain of salt, right? Silicon Valley Bank was not big enough by itself to set off contagion. It it was this tiny portion about, it was, uh, it's about 2% of the U.S. banking system. It's a 0.01% 0.01% of the world banking system. It's not like if it's not like there's a contagion issue in that sense. The, the, the risk of contagion was psychological. And the risk of contagion had to do with the size of uninsured deposits in other medium-sized banks around the country. So the policymakers had to decide what to do here against the backdrop of it being ad hoc and really not good policy to extend insurance to these very favored people. Whereas, you know, a number of banks have failed in this country in the last 15 years, like hundreds have failed. And uh, most of them are, you know, community, small banks and community banks. Some of them are fairly, were fairly large uh, across the middle of the country. Banks supported not by, not by uh, tech geniuses, but by people doing useless things like farming and small business. <laughs> and... Those people were not rescued, right? The leading citizens of those small towns, cities, counties who put money into those banks. I mean, sometimes they, sometimes they may have been fortunate enough to have their banks sold, right, whole, in, in whole to another bank. But to the extent that, that the buyers could not be found or the banks were really in terrible trouble, you know, the leading citizens of those communities who, who, who put their deposits in those banks were not rescued. So... The, the demands from the Silicon Valley elites and the winery elites and so forth to have their deposits, all of them over the insurance limit, insured, was really problematic at a lot of levels. But the regulators and the Biden administration, and I think it's important to understand, this wasn't, just, this wasn't a decision the President of the United States made on his own. It was a decision that was jointly made by independent regulators, and including some Republicans, most prominently Jay Powell, the Fed, It was a decision jointly made by everybody. And I think they made it for a good reason, which was that there was a serious risk of contagion, psychological contagion, 
uh, here across the, mid, the middle of the U.S. banking industry. The, the four giant banks that dominate the banking industry post-2008, they were never in trouble. It was ne- this never threatened them. But it threatened that middle, that middle section of the banking industry, which is important, and which, if it came apart, you, you don't know what the knock-on effects would be. Uh, we're not talking about tiny banks. We're talking about banks uh, with tens, hundreds of billions of deposits uh, and investments. So they made that decision. And I, as you said, Ryan, I, you know, I got to say, I can't fault them for that, given, the, given what we are told they knew about, about movements in the banking, you know, in movements in the financial markets as of Sunday. The, it, it was a case of being kind of over a barrel. And, uh, but now, but now, really, we have kind of calm, uh, we're close to being back in a calm moment. And now there's some important things that need to happen to ensure that our democracy functions the way it should. The most important one is to make every effort, and I mean every effort, the full power of the American state needs to be deployed here to try to find the, the, um, the remnants of SVB, a home in another private institution, and to take the responsibility for covering these deposits off of the entire banking industry and place it someplace where it can be managed in a way that's not effectively socializing it. That is really important that that happened. And I believe that, 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 that the regulators and the, the Biden administration understand this. The question is, can they get it done? Is it something, is it possible to do? And I think the question of whether the question of whether they can get it done or not is a deep question. The second thing that needs to be done is the type of investigation we were discussing earlier into everything about this, every step of the way. And the third thing that needs to be done, which is kind of obvious, is what Elizabeth Warren has been saying. Elizabeth Warren, as you know, chaired the oversight panel that I was the vice chair of. Um, Elizabeth was the most, I think, ferocious opponent of weakening Dodd-Frank in the U.S. Congress. Um, Elizabeth is one of the heroes of this story. Okay, there aren't a lot of heroes in this story. Elizabeth sure is sure is one of them. Mm-hmm. And um, another hero of this story, unfortunately, is no longer with us. Who was the president of the AFL-CIO at the time in 2018, Richard Trumka, who wrote a letter to every Democratic senator who voted for this bill, demanding that that senator explain directly and personally to him why he had hurt working people so badly. That letter, by the way, is in the American Prospect uh, uh, this week. Um, and, you know, as, as I think you know, Rich died tragically of a heart attack uh, two years ago. But Elizabeth, Elizabeth has three things that she said that need to be done. The first, obviously, is to reverse the 2018 rollback of Dodd-Frank and move the, yes, the systemically significant number back from $250 billion to $50 billion. Uh, the second thing that needs to be done is to do something about payroll bank accounts. Um, it, it does seem kind of kind of correct that we shouldn't have payroll bank accounts at risk in a situation like this, but we need a, the insurance system to cover them in a, in a systematic and ordinary course way with premiums, and and that needs to be that needs to be worked out uh, between Congress and the bank regulators uh, how to do that um, because we can't be put over a barrel like this. Uh, like this again. And then the third thing is to look into the question of whether there need to be further legislative reforms uh, to address the, the sort of the fact that a, a kind of such a fundamental sort of failure uh, of bank regulation uh, occurred here. 
um, uh, and and is, are, are there further measures that need to be taken? Um, and uh, and Elizabeth's been talking about some of that uh, recently. But those uh, but those first two things are, are no brainers. They need to happen immediately. Well, Damon, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be able to talk, you know, in a sort of <laughs> in a non-trivial way about this. <laughs> yeah, well, it's non-trivial stuff, so I, I appreciate it. That was Damon Silvers, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of The Intercept. Our producer is Jose Olivares. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. I'll see you soon. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.